There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once you have it, you cannot lose it because you had it because of his sovereign love and grace for you and he does not change his mind. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, can you turn with me please to Romans chapter 7 and we're reading verses 14 through to chapter 8 verse 4. Romans chapter 7, and you'll find it on page 1756 of the Church Pew Bible. Page 1756, Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul writes these words. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate... I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do, excuse me, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weaned by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of a sinful man, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but live according to the Spirit. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. In the first part of this passage we are looking at this morning, you may well be thinking, Richard, this is bleak and arid and dry. This morning coming to church, I really want you to be encouraged. 
I want it to leave stimulated, inspired. I want it to grow deeper in my faith. But from what we've read so far, the Apostle Paul is bemoaning all the things he wants to do but cannot do, and that's what, that which, which I should do, I can do, and each time I attempt to do it, evil is right there with me, and I end up doing that which I hate. I am a slave to sin, he writes. And if you were with us last Sunday morning, when we were in the heights of Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said this, You are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. If you were with us in previous Sundays, you'll remember me saying, particularly chapter 5, at verse 5, when Paul for the first time talks about the Holy Spirit and he describes the work of the Holy Spirit like this, that God pours into our hearts, pours, lavishes in an outrageous fashion his love through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And some of you are already there in your mind And you're beginning to say, Richard, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul clearly taught in unambiguous fashion that we were now dead to sin. The power, the tyranny of sin was over. And now in chapter 7 he says, once again, I'm a slave to sin. What, What is going on here? And others of you will be saying this. Richard, the passage you read describes me to a T, perfectly. For the things I want to do in my Christian life, I end up not doing, and I end up doing that which I hate, the things I don't want to do. And if that's you, come with me again, please, into chapter 7 to look at what Paul is writing here, to see this powerful, passionate piece of writing. In verse 14, look at it again. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And that seems a contradiction from all we have learned so far. And then he writes, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. In the first half of the chapter, up to verse 13, Paul has been writing in the past tense. But from verse 14 onward, he uses the first person singular again and again and again and again and again. I do. I hope. I, I, I. It's all there. Paul is writing from his own daily experience in seeking to live the Christian life each day. Then he goes further. And some New Testament scholars have difficulty with this passage and they suggest it's Paul writing before he came to faith, but I am far from convinced. First, because he uses the first person singular. Secondly, verse 22, look down the passage. And verse 22 summarizes wonderfully all he's been saying from verse 14 onwards. And he says, For in my inner being, in my heart and soul, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So not only is Paul writing from a personal 
perspective, the first person singular. He also writes, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. And I think most of us would have a hard time suggesting that the person who delights in God's law, luxuriates in it, loves it, wants to apply it to their life, I think we'd have a hard time suggesting that was someone who has not met the risen Christ. And so the evidence seems to suggest that there is Paul writing from personal experience because he writes of how he delights in the law. And then thirdly, and quite paradoxically, we come to verse let me have a look here. Verse 24. And he writes this. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now you may be sitting there and saying, Richard, that is a stretch. That is a paradox indeed. How can we possibly be reassured or comforted with Paul writing, what a wretched man I am. Where is the comfort or reassurance in that? Come on. Well, let me suggest this. That in our Christian life, from time to time, we have experiences beyond what we could ask or imagine. Moments when God wonderfully answers our prayers. Moments when we feel and sense his hand upon our life, taking us by the hand, leading, guiding, directing us each day, drawing us into an ever-deepening relationship with him. And those are moments that are just spectacular, exciting, blessed days when one prayer after another is being answered and he is right there beside us protecting us, sustaining us encouraging us but please also understand this that when an individual and Paul is saying this as clear as a bell in this passage when an individual is determined to grow in their faith and they are saying, as we said last Sunday morning at the end of chapter 6, I am passionate, passionate about growing in my faith. I am longing to know him better. I am seeking after holiness and nothing will stand in my way. That is a wonderful, blessed place to be. But please hear this warning. Now, when you get to that point, you will discover that all that Paul is writing in this chapter is not theoretical, but practical. Now, let me hold that thought and give you an illustration to explain what I mean. If you have decided that you'd like to try a new sport and you decide it's soccer or basketball or baseball and you've never played before, you of course turn up at training and you discover that after weeks of rolling up your sleeve and investing time and effort and learning, and the more you practice, the better you become. And you're making steady progress. Now in the Christian life, when you first come to faith, the Bible at times is an obscure book. 
I remember coming to faith and I wasn't quite sure whether I was reading in the Old Testament or the New Testament. I wasn't quite sure the difference between the Gospels and the Epistles. Who on earth were the major prophets and who were the minor prophets? And why was the first five books called the Pentateuch? And so as you begin to learn, you get into a small group, you begin to pray, God, you discover, becomes more real each day. And engaging with his word, you learn more about him and how to apply it to your life. And slowly but surely, you make progress. But please also understand this. That when you are ready to seek after holiness, when you are deadly serious about growing in your faith, and when prayer becomes a daily experience, and when you long to know him better, one of the first experiences you will have is this, that you will be left tender and sore and fragile when you discover the weight and the gravitas and the magnitude of your own sin. And it is not a nice experience. It will move you to your knees and push you tearfully to begin to cry out to God, Father, cleanse me, change me. I cannot do this on my own. I don't have the resources. I don't have the strength. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Because we cannot do it on our own. And that's what Paul is writing in this passage. If I try in my own strength to do the things I know I ought to do, I end up not doing them and doing that which I know to be wrong. And that's the point he's making. Remember his descriptions from chapter 4 and 5 and 6 when he said this, You once were dead in trespasses and sin, but now you're alive in Christ. And for the first time, you became alive. God was real. Prayer was answered. The Bible made sense. Worship was valuable and significant. And you wanted to participate. You were alive for the first time. You were free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. New heart, new mind, new conscience, new appetite, new desires. You were free, free from the power and tyranny of sin. But please also understand this that for the first time, you are also free not to pray, not to grow in grace, free not to read the scriptures, free not to apply them to your life. And what Paul is saying here is this, that there have been moments in his life the great apostle Paul, evangelist to the Gentiles, missionary leader, motivator supreme, the finest theological mind with the exception of Christ himself, writes what? I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not, I do, not do it, and I end up doing what I do not want to do. And in verse 22... He summarizes it all. And look at it with me. He says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. 
But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. What is he saying? Quite simply this, that each and every moment of each and every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, there is a spiritual civil war going on for your heart and soul and mind. Every moment, no exceptions, minute after minute after minute after minute. And sin and temptation will come alongside you and whisper in your ear and mock you and ridicule you and treat you with skepticism and say, okay, okay, you enjoyed worship this morning, but I will just bide my time. I'll just wait. You, <laughs> remember back in January you promised to read the Bible in a year? Well, how's that going? Remember you promised you would take a stand against this sin and that sin and the other? <laughs> I know you like no one else. And the things you want to do, you cannot do and you end up doing that which you hate. You're mine. I've got you. Forget all this nonsense of going deeper in your faith. Forget all that business about passionately pursuing holiness. It's going nowhere and you and I both know that. And that's why Paul writes, what a wretched man I am. He fully, unambiguously understands the power of sin at work in the life of the Christian. But mercifully, he does not stop at verse 24. Look at it again. The first part of the verse he writes is a cry of despair. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. And if the first part of the phrase is a cry of despair, the second is that of triumph. I almost in my mind imagine Paul, he was dictating this letter to an assistant who was writing it out, and as Paul is pouring out all that he's experienced in his Christian life, he then adds, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me, not what. Paul isn't suggesting some kind of secret or sacred formula. This isn't something that you just come across. He says, who will rescue me? He needs to be rescued. He needs a redeemer. And no sooner is he dictating it when I imagine him slapping himself in the forehead and thinking, of course, how did I miss it? What on earth was I thinking? Who will rescue me? And that wonderful, blazing moment of grace overwhelms him once again. And he writes, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if there is a breakthrough in this passage, it is right here. When Paul understands and remembers a fundamental, basic, cardinal principle of growing in faith. And it's this. Now you've heard me say this again and again and again, but it is apropos this morning. 
When we are going through difficult days and we are under pressure and sin is deceiving us and drawing us in and our back is against the wall and we are going nowhere and we're shrinking inwardly and we're looking at the challenge before us, that's where our focus is. And the Apostle Paul says again and again and again, Beloved, learn to look up the way. Lift your eyes off of the challenge before you and no longer focus on the sin before you, but focus on his response in grace. And he lifts his eyes heavenwards and the entire chapter changes. And he says, Thanks be to God. For our Lord Jesus Christ, he has rescued us. And what Paul has been saying up to this point is this. If you are seeking to live for Christ in your own strength, you will be caught up once again in sin. And it will be your master once again. Don't go back there. Don't mess with it. Don't play with fire. Put it behind you and move on. Stand for him. And more than that, you do not do it in your own strength. And how do we know that? Let's take a step further because he takes us into chapter 8 and he writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And here it comes. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in him. And here is what I need you to take away this morning. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but now, in this moment, from this point on, we live according to the Spirit of God. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, I have tried it in my own strength, and it ends up a disaster. I've tried it and I become frustrated and defeated and knocked down and beaten and trampled upon and I am overwhelmed by shame and the gravitas and power and magnitude of my own sin. And it is useless. And I don't want to live there. I'm fed up living there. Defeated one day after another, after another, after another. And then he writes... But there is no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. If you are unfamiliar with Romans chapter 8, let me plead with you, please, this week, go over it and over it and over it and over it again. It is one of the great chapters of the entirety of all scriptures, and I cannot wait to get into it with you. It's a remarkable chapter. And it begins, there is no condemnation. And look at the end of the chapter. What does he say? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Now allow me please to speak as gently and as pastorally as I can. From time to time I will find myself in the very difficult circumstance of going to meet and talking with a family and someone in the family has committed suicide. And within an hour of arriving and trying to, the family are just reeling in shock and they do not know where to turn and they cannot think straight. But inevitably within that first hour, one of the family members will come to me, often a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, and they will say to me, Richard, has Tom, has Bob, has Samantha, has Anne, have they lost their salvation because they took their own life? And will God cut them out of heaven and send them to eternal darkness away from him? And in the midst of all of the sadness, I have the great joy of reminding them of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Look at it again. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, and neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please hear this. And if you are grieving over a suicide of a family member, understand this. The circumstances of the death of an individual do not determine their eternal life. The circumstances of the death of an individual does not determine their eternal life. Their relationship with Christ it determines their eternal life. And he is absolutely clear. Once you have it, you cannot lose it. You cannot. There is no condemnation. Will we battle day after day after day? Yes. Will there be a civil war raging in our hearts and minds and souls? Absolutely. Will sin and temptation and Satan mock us and treat us with skepticism and seek to bring us down and ruin any progress we make in faith? Absolutely. But understand this and leave here this morning holding on to this promise. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once you have it, you cannot lose it because you had it because of his sovereign love and grace for you and he does not change his mind. You are his. You belong to him. He will not abandon and he will not walk away and he will never give up on you. And so this morning we leave here standing on the promises of Christ our King. Through eternal ages let those praises ring. Glory in the highest I shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage. 
Father, thank you in moments of sorrow and uncertainty and perplexity when we feel the weight and guilt of our own sin that we remember we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Whatever you're facing this week, First Presbyterian Church would like to pray for you. Please call 864-672-1838 to leave your name and a prayer request or receive prayer in person. Details about this service are listed on your screen. To purchase a DVD of today's message, please send a check or money order for $10 to First Presbyterian Church and include today's program number. For more information, call 864-672-1846 or visit our website at firstpresgreenville.org.